Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome to the Fired Up podcast. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to our show this week. As always, I appreciate it greatly. I hope everybody has a great week looking forward. Uh, The last week of June, I believe, and then we're moving into July. This year is flying by, people. All right, let's get uh, right into the news because it has been a bombshell week. I don't have to tell you. Um, We're going to talk about uh, the the highlights, if you will, the biggest events of the week. Um, And, you know, I can just say each week as I go through and prepare the content for my show, Um, I have to choose among what are the stories, uh, what is it that I want to bring to those stories that you may not have heard elsewhere, and uh, this week was extremely challenging. So, you know, obviously, um, I don't think anybody on the planet has not heard about the Supreme Court decision that came down on Friday, and we're going to talk about that, Um, but before we get to that, there were a couple of other big events that happened this week, and uh, I want to go through them as well. Uh, But as always, when we start, we want to give our update on the COVID-19 situation here in the U.S. Uh, We are up to 87 million cases. Uh, 1,016,000 people have died from the disease and 581, I'm sorry, 591 million people have been vaccinated. So, you know, we continue to make progress. Uh, we are learning more about the, uh, the, the new variants that are coming out, or sub-variants is probably a better description. Uh, and they are giving us reasons to redouble our efforts to protect ourselves. Um, obviously, uh, when a new variant for COVID comes out, uh, we want to make sure that we're protected, that we are protecting our loved ones, our community, and so forth. Uh, And this is no exception. Uh, It is recommendations, uh, or or rather recommendations coming out of the CDC and other medical communities are suggesting that, you know, we go back and start wearing those masks again when the situation warrants. You know, when you're in large groups and so forth, uh, you want to make sure that you're not exposing yourself to catching the new variants so we'll, we'll continue talking about that as the weeks go by, as we do. But for right now, let's get this week's show kicked off. So, as I said, it has been a very eventful week. Uh, we saw the uh, House January 6th hearings uh, continue. And I've got some highlights and things that we're going to talk about related to that. And we also learned that... Um, that Six is probably not the end number of televised uh, public hearings that we will have. Uh, From what I am understanding from news reports, uh, there has been new information coming into the committee on a continuing basis throughout these hearings, and they are looking at putting together, uh, doing their investigation, and hopefully bringing some additional information to the American public. Uh, But in the uh, Thursday hearing, uh, which was the fifth congressional hearing, there were a couple of bombshells that were dropped. And I want to go through and and kind of highlight what was discussed, what we learned 
with regard to what was going on, you know, day by day. And, you know, if you've been following the hearings, and I, I must say kudos to the committee and kudos to the Democrats, they have provided a very tight uh, tactical presentation. They have, you know, backed up things that they've been talking about with uh, live evidence from uh, people testifying in front of them as well as video evidence. And we've gotten a very, very interesting and detailed look behind the scenes of what went on in the, the months and weeks and days leading up to the January 6th uh, insurrection and invasion of the Capitol building. Uh, we've talked about some of these in prior shows, so I won't go back over that ground. But in the fifth hearing that occurred on Thursday, one of the key points that came up was the idea that uh, former President Trump was looking to reshape the Department of Justice and you know put someone in charge of it who would essentially do his bidding, uh, which is counter to the charter of the DOJ, it is not what the Department of Justice is about. It is not intended to be the personal law firm of the uh, executive branch or the president. It is intended to be the uh, defender of the American people and the Constitution. Uh, and that is the role that they have always played. Uh, but what we learned was that Former President Trump wanted to install as uh, acting in attorney general in the last uh, 40 or so days of his term, a gentleman by the name of Jeremy, I'm sorry, Jeffrey Clark. And uh, he pushed forward with the notion of uh, firing the acting attorney general at the time. And he was uh, acting deputy, I'm sorry, yeah, acting deputy attorney general Richard Donahue was one of the uh, people who were there, as well as acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen. Uh, and they were approached by the Trump team um, and, and basically asked to step down as, uh, you know, acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general. Uh, because President Trump wanted to appoint Jeffrey Clark as the new acting attorney general. And again, realize that there's only about a month left in the Trump administration. But uh, as part of, of his scheme to overturn the election and invalidate the results of the electors uh, that were submitted by the states, uh, Donald Trump wanted the Department of Justice to uh, open up investigations uh, in the states on the uh, the ballots and try and get the alternate slates of electors uh, accepted and presented to the Congress for final ratification of the vote. Now, un understand, number one, that the Department of Justice does not insert itself and, you know, acting attorney general, Rosen made this crystal clear that it is not a function of the DOJ to insert itself into a political process or into a 
presidential election specifically. Uh, and, you know, in, in looking to appoint uh, Jeffrey Clark uh, to, to get a picture of it, Jeffrey Clark's background, he was the Assistant Attorney General for the Environmental and Natural Resources Division from 2018 to 2021. Uh, Clark has never tried a criminal case or conducted a criminal investigation uh, when he uh, picked when he pitched to Trump to oust the acting attorney general and take the job as the nation's top law enforcement officer. And this information uh, comes from uh, various news sources uh, as well as the live transcript from the the broadcast. Um, you know, he, Clark's big idea, and apparently for a short period of time, Donald Trump liked the idea, uh, was to send a letter, uh, sending a de Department of Justice letter urging state legislators in Georgia to delay the election certification, citing suspected broder, I'm sorry, voter fraud. Now, keep in mind that uh, this had already been uh, tested and failed uh, on three occasions, including, um, you know, two machine recounts and a hand recount of the Georgia ballots, and no discrepancies were found. Um, but he pushed that idea and, you know, brought it to various members of the, you know, uh, administration team at the time. Um, one of whom, House Attorney, former White House Attorney Eric Hirschman, told the committee that in his recorded testimony that Clark's proposal was nuts. And this is a quote. I mean, this is a guy, best I can tell, the only thing he knew about environmental and elections challenges is that they both start with E. And that, you know, was, was kind of a, uh, a punch moment there. Um, you know, Donahue recalled that, you know, Clark, when challenged about, you know, he told Clark why he was not even competent to be attorney general. Uh, he's never been a criminal attorney. He's never conducted a criminal investigation in his life. He's never even been in front of a grand jury, much less a trial jury. And uh, Jeffrey Clark's response to that is, well, I've done a lot of complicated appeals and civil litigation, environmental litigation. Uh, and I said, you know, and, and Donahue replied, that's right, you're an environmental lawyer. How about you go back to your office and we'll call you when there's an oil spill? Um, you know, and that, that was kind of the gist of the session they had, um, in, including... A, a very powerful moment where um, uh, Donahue and uh, Jeff, Jeffrey Rosen pointed out to the president that they were informed that if Clark was appointed by the president to be the acting attorney general, that all of the district attorneys general uh, in the country, with the exception of the national security attorney general, who would remain at his duties because it was critically necessary for him to stay there. But all, I don't know, 145 other uh, attorneys general from around the state, or around the country rather, 
would resign en masse. Uh, according to the interview, Trump asked uh, Rosen, you know, what he would do if he appointed um, Clark as attorney general. He said, I would immediately resign. So, you know, faced with that, you know, fact, uh, Trump backed down on his request to put Jeffrey Clark uh, in as attorney general. Uh, and it just kind of goes to, you know, the, the desperate times that the former president found himself in, um, you know, and, and with all of the things going on, you know, a, another big event that came out of uh, the Thursday session, uh, and this had been hinted to in prior, um, prior uh, committee hearings, that there were a number of people, uh, congressmen and senators, who had requested pardons from, from President Trump uh, for, you know, whatever things they might have done in, in support of the big lie. And those names got dropped in this hearing, and they included Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, Congress, Congresspersons Louis Gohmert of Texas, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, and Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia uh, were named in public testimony uh, given to the committee. And further, uh, it was clear that uh, the recommendation, which came in the form of an email from uh, Congressman Mo Brooks, Republican of Alabama, uh, to then Special Assistant to the President and Oval Office Operations Coordinator Molly Michael, um, and he included that he recommended that the president give general all-purpose pardons to the following groups of people. Uh, every Republican who signed the amicus brief in the Texas lawsuit uh, against other states de deriving from their violation of Article 1, Section 4, and perhaps other provisions of the United States Constitution and every congressman and senator who voted to reject the Electoral College vote submission of Arizona and Pennsylvania. And if memory serves, there were like 147 uh, of those members who voted uh, to reject Arizona and Pennsylvania's uh, Electoral College vote submissions. So, you know, it, it became clear with this session that uh, one, there really was almost no depth to which the uh, Trump administration and President Trump in particular uh, were going to go to to try and overturn the election and for you know, Donald Trump to remain in power as president of the United States. Um, fortunately, uh, those efforts were not successful. And, you know, Joe Biden was sworn in as president um, on the 20th of January and uh, due in no small part to the effort of uh, Vice President Mike Pence uh, acting as President of the Senate and completing his constitutionally required duties uh, to certify the electors uh, for which you know he has earned the ire of President Trump uh, as well as you know death threats and, and other, threats against his safety and his family's safety um, by pro-Trump supporters. So, you know, there, there was that going on. And the, the hearing 
as I said, were presented in a very matter-of-fact way. The information uh, that was provided uh, came from live testimony of uh, the witnesses at hand. Um, and, you know, it, it is interesting uh, as you look across the five days of public hearings so far uh, that all of the testifiers or test testimony received from people in, in the presence of the committee, uh, almost all of them are Republican. Um, the, the committee has done, in, in my opinion, a very professional, a very focused, detail-oriented, fact-based uh, presentation of their findings. And, you know, we look forward to, and I look forward to, with great interest, to see what the next round of hearings will be uh, that are slated to uh, commence in July. Uh, they're taking a couple of weeks off. Uh, stick a pin in that little piece of information. I'm going to come back to it. Um, so, you know, the, the hearings uh, to date, as I've said, they've been fact-based. They haven't just been opinions of the committee. They have been testimony, sworn testimony from the witnesses that have showed up. That has been backed up by various uh, segments of video evidence uh, and additional testimony on video from such people as former Attorney General uh, Bill Barr um, and, and many other uh, administration officials who were serving in the Trump administration at the time of the insurrection. Um, I, you know, am, am curious to find out, you know, and, and I've been looking at the polls um, to, to judge the overall reactions of the American public uh, to what they have seen uh, in the, uh, the hearings and what they've learned in the hearings. And uh, in general, uh, the polling is that a majority of Americans uh, think and believe based on what they have seen and heard from the hearings that uh, former President Trump did commit crimes and you know should be prosecuted for those crimes and it, it should be noted that uh, those opinions are uh, bipartisan in nature uh, that there are Republicans as well as Democrats and others that believe that President Trump uh, committed uh, crimes and should be held accountable for them. Uh, remains to be seen uh, what's going to happen with it. Uh, keep in mind that uh, select committees don't have the, the power to prosecute people. That is the Department of Justice. But news has come out that DOJ has been requesting thousands of pages uh, of testimony and, and evidence that the committee has gathered as they do their investigation into the events of January 6th. So, you know, it, it may yet be that there will be a day of reckoning for former President Trump and uh, people in his circle. You know, so we will see what happens. Uh, if history has taught us anything, uh, if, if you look back at the Watergate trial with, with President Nixon, uh, there were a total, I believe, of 40 people that were uh, convicted of crimes uh, in that uh, event, and uh, more than half of them 
ended up serving jail time. So hopefully, you know, history will will follow through and justice will be done so that, you know, we have some some answers and some closure uh, to this, um, you know, and, and it will see what what transpires. All right. Um, I've got something a, a little different for this week's show, and it ties into uh, what I'm going to talk about in the next segment of uh, the, the story here. And that is that, um, as you know, the Supreme Court on Friday overturned the Roe versus Wade decision and the Casey versus Planned Parenthood uh, supporting decisions uh, and, and basically uh, made abortion illegal in this country again. Um, you know, the obviously the news has been all over this story and I do want to talk about some of my impressions and my opinions on it. But I wanted to, to set this up with a, a, a special presentation that I found uh, from a young woman by the name of uh, Emma Silverman, who's a uh, graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, it is some powerful thoughts. Uh, she has said it much better than I could say it. So we're going to take a break. I'm going to play the audio of her presentation. It can be found at uh, MidasTouch.com and you know, and that's M-E-I-D-A-S-T-O-U-C-H.com. So, as I said, we're going to take our break. Uh, this audio is about five minutes long, so uh, please stick with it. I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, and we will be right back on the other side and continue our discussion on the events of this week. You're listening to the Fired Up Podcast right here on WJMS Media. Uh, thank you so much for for downloading and listening. And uh, coming up next is our audio segment. Thank you. Hi, my name is Emma Silverman, and I'm a recent graduate from the University of Texas at Austin. And I am heartbroken. Angry. Livid. Heartbroken for the women of this country. Angry at the Supreme Court justices who overturned Roe v. Wade and livid that the women of our generation now have less rights than a firearm. Than a firearm. And you know what? I used to think that this decision was solely based on politics and religion. And don't get me wrong. That is a big part of it. A huge part of it. But this decision was also fueled by something else. Hate and power. Because in states like Texas, where there's no exception for rape or incest, women of all ages who are raped are going to have to carry a baby to term because those justices chose hate and power. That 13, 14-year-old girl who was taken advantage of by a family member, she's going to have to carry a baby to term because those justices chose hate and power. 
And inevitably, when other cases get brought before the Supreme Court regarding same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage, people of all ages won't be able to love who they want to love because those justices chose hate and power. It was never about states' rights. No, it was about hate and power. It was never about small government. Otherwise, a branch of government wouldn't be telling me what to do with my body. No, it's about hate and power. It was never about children. I think recent mass shooting can speak to that. No. It's about hate and power. It was never even about life. Otherwise, your right to carry wouldn't triumph over a living person. No, it, it was never about life. It's about hate and power. And yes, I'm speaking to the women the people with a uterus, to the people who can carry a pregnancy. But I'm also speaking to the men in their lives, to the people in their lives, the men who have friends that are women, the husbands of wives, and the fathers of daughters. If you support this decision, how dare you claim to love, care about, or respect the people in your life that this decision affects. You should be so ashamed of yourself. You don't love them. You don't care about them. You don't even respect them. No, because you're choosing an opinion, an outdated opinion from a historical era where women were nothing less than a housewife. You're choosing that over the rights of the women in your life, of the people in your life. You don't love them. You don't care about them and you do not respect them. I wanna make that clear. And to Greg Abbott, Ted Cruz, Mitch McConnell, Anyone that falls close to them on the political spectrum, you are the scum of the earth. And the legacy that you leave behind for every future generation to come will be nothing more than a skid mark on the shit stain of a country that you call free. Nothing about this is free. Nothing. And to all the people out there who oppose this decision, who are angry about it, let that rage fuel you. Because make no mistake, this is not the end of an argument. This is a new beginning to an old fight. And we're back. Thank you for staying with us and thank you for listening to that special piece that uh, we inserted into the podcast uh, this episode. Um, I listened to a a lot of uh, the the media's presentations and and what I heard from around the spectrum. You know whether it was you know uh, 
media on the left or, or media on the right, um, you know, newspapers and so forth. Um, and I came across, you know, the, the, the video for this on the Midas Touch website. And I, I thought that the young lady just uh, presented such a impassioned and uh, coherent uh, presentation that I, I thought I had to include it in this week's show. So, you know, again, you know, it, it's the opinions are hers. Um, I thought that she did a really good job of presenting them uh, and wanted to include it uh, on on those grounds. Um, so just in case to, to back up a half step. You know, if you've been off the planet or, you know, in a cave, incommunicado or, or whatever uh, since last week um, and you missed it on Friday, June 24th, the Supreme Court of the United States uh, issued its decision, um, not really unexpected given the leak of the draft memo uh, that came out uh, in the media uh, a couple of months back, um, that they were uh, eliminating the constitutional right to an abortion uh, by overruling the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision and leaving the question of abortion's legality to the states. And the there's an article uh, that came out uh, late in the day on Friday from the Wall Street Journal uh, and uh, McClatchy News Service that I thought gave a very studied and almost scholarly um, analysis of the events. And if you were following media on Friday, uh, the decision came out uh, in mid-morning uh, and it was released through uh, an email and electronic posting, which is unusual for the Supreme Court. Usually decisions are uh, read to the public from the Supreme Court chamber, although in, in this instance they cited uh, coronavirus and pandemic protections as to why they didn't have a, a public reading of the decision. Uh, but be that as it may, um, the Supreme Court as I said, uh, overruled the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision and also the subsequent decision of uh, Casey v. Planned Parenthood, uh, which served to further define uh, how uh, the, the practice of uh, legally protecting abortions would work. Um, so the uh, decision came out as uh, no surprise to all as a 6-3 majority decision with uh, the six conservative justices uh, voting to overrule and the three uh, liberal um, minority position uh, in defense. Um, so in, in the article, which was in the Wall Street Journal, uh, in it, it goes into defining kind of some of the thinking uh, that, that surrounded the decision. The decision itself is about 210 pages. Um, 
and it, it states, uh, among other things, uh, that in siding with Mississippi, the court's conservative majority said the Roe decision was egregiously wrong in recognizing a constitutional right to an abortion, an error the court perpetuated in the decades since. Uh, according to Justice Alito, uh, he wrote, uh, the Constitution makes no reference to abortion and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. Uh, he continues, it's time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives, a.k.a. the states. Uh, the court voted 6-3 uh, to side with the case uh, that was brought, that led to the decision, and that was the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization from Mississippi. Uh, but on the broader question of whether to uh, overturn Roe, uh, the court voted 5-4 with Chief Justice Roberts uh, siding with the minority, uh, although agreeing in, in what is called a concurrent opinion, agreeing uh, to uh, support the Mississippi case, but he disagreed with the majority in terms of, you know, overturning Roe in its entirety. Um, and, you know, just to kind of give you a, a feel for what uh, Justice Alito wrote, um, he wrote that, you know, the majority's decision was based heavily on its view that in 1868, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, abortion was widely restricted throughout the U.S. Therefore, Justice Alito wrote, the right to end an unwanted pregnancy couldn't be derived from the amendment's provisions protecting individual liberty and equality from infringement by state governments. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. On the contrary, an unbroken tradition of prohibiting abortion on pain of criminal punishment persisted from the earliest days of the common law until 1973 when Roe was decided. In interpreting what is meant by the 14th Amendment's reference to, quote, liberty, close quote, we must guard against the natural human tendency to confuse what that amendment protects with our own ardent views about the liberty that Americans should enjoy. He's, the court's decision uh, is complicated um, because there are several elements uh, that individual justices uh, brought to the table on this decision, uh, not just um, what I just said about uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Um, so Justice Roberts wrote, both the court's opinion and the dissent display a relentless freedom from doubt on legal issue that I cannot share, uh, he wrote. Allowing states to ban abortion before fetal viability without deciding whether to overrule Roe was a more prudent and responsible course, he argued. Uh, the court's decision to overrule Roe and Casey is a serious uh, jolt to the legal system regardless of how you view those cases, Justice Roberts wrote. A narrower decision rejecting the misguided viability line would be market, markedly less unsettling 
and nothing more is needed to decide this case. Um, so, you know, it, it's noted and the article continues to say the court said its decision was limited to abortion because it alone involves the termination of a potential life. But in a concurring opinion, Justice Clarence Thomas said the line of cases related to Roe, which under the constitutional guarantees of due process and liberty recognized rights to birth control, struck down sodomy laws, and in 2015 provided for same-sex marriage, should be overruled as well. And that was also in the uh, leaked memo and created some controversy uh, uh, as well with this decision. So the liberal justices, signaling profound disagreement, jointly authored a dissent. They accused the majority of discarding the balance the precedent struck between a woman's interest and that of the state in protecting, quote, potential life. Uh, Elena Kagan uh, wrote, today the court discards that balance. It says that from the very moment of fertilization, a woman has no rights to speak of. Justices Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan wrote in their dissent. Um, although the case in, that was before the court involved a 15-week ban, the overruling of Roe gives states broad latitude to regulate or prohibit abortion as they see fit. Many conservative-leaning states are, are poised to tighten access further, while some liberal ones have established permissive abortion regimes under state law. The decision could become a major issue in this year's elections, uh, as state and federal lawmakers look to position themselves in a post-Roe world. The article continues, In anticipation of the ruling, several states have passed laws limiting or banning the procedure. Thirteen states have so-called trigger laws, and we've discussed these on, on this podcast uh, in prior episodes, uh, that called for prohibiting abortion if Roe were overruled. Clinics in conservative states have been preparing for possible closure, while facilities in more liberal areas have been getting ready for a potentially heavy influx of patients from other states. Um, so, you know, the, the, the decision in Roe uh, is based in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, which states all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor do nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So this has been kind of the one of the foundational pillars uh, for the, the Roe decision as well as, as for some of the other ones I've mentioned already, uh, including, um, you know, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, including uh, contraceptive protections, uh, same-sex marriage, and, and so forth. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is not a 
a codified law. It is a legal precedent, a right granted under decision of the legal system in this country. And as such, uh, this served as the, the framework within which the law could be overruled. It was a law created by uh, the court, and the court has taken it away. Um, and, you know, a, a little bit of backdrop on, on Roe. The decision came out in 1973. It was written by uh, Justice Harry Blackman, who was appointed to the court by President Richard Nixon, and it reflected a line of legal thinking that the Constitution barred political majorities from imposing their moral judgments on the intimate choices of individuals. The Roe Court grounded the right to an abortion in the 14th Amendment's guarantee that states can't deprive uh, individuals of life and liberty without due process of law. The ruling built off a constitutionally recognized right to privacy, which came with uh, which came when the court struck down state restrictions on contraceptives. Uh, that ruling didn't spark an immediate outcry, but by the Reagan era, it had become a rallying point for conservatives who believed the high court had improperly invented rights not laid out in the Constitution, usurping the political branches of government. Uh, hence, the arguments that were made by uh, Justice Alito. Uh, in in the uh, overruling and in the leaked memo to that to that effect. So what we have is, you know, the the court sees itself as correcting an egregious wrong, and uh, you know, creating uh, a, a more balanced. Um, approach to the legal system somehow. I'm, I'm still trying to process that. Um, you know, and it, it, it really was necessary for a case like uh, the Mississippi law, which is, which is called the Gestational Age Act. Uh, it was adopted in 2018 and initially designed as a more incremental attack on abortion. Uh, at the time, a full legal assault on Roe had no realistic chance of su success uh, because Justice Anthony Kennedy, a maverick conservative, stood, aside, uh, stood alongside Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and three other liberal justices in forming a solid majority to keep abortion rights in place. So, you know, the, the battle lines, you know, had been drawn many years ago. Um, I, I can recall, and, and for every Supreme Court justice that was seeking to be approved by the Senate uh, from the Reagan era forward, one of the key questions, if not the very first question that they would get asked is uh, what their position was on the the Roe versus Wade law and you know the uh, federal protections for abortion, uh, all of this came out of you know that response to to this legislation to this decision in 1973, and you know has has progressed through our society uh, ever since, uh, and here we are you know 49 years and change later. 
and finally the the hurdle has been overcome and you know Roe versus Wade and uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood is no longer uh, law of the land so you know what does that mean well I, I talked about this a little in um, the prior podcast I did uh, what this means is most likely we are going to go become a country where there are uh, abortion safe havens uh, and you know they are you know located in the west coast states the northern east coast states and a few states in the middle of the country uh, and the rest of the country is going to have some level of restrictions or outright ban on uh, a, a woman getting an abortion. Um, it, it is a, a, a really, really uh, troublesome issue for the country. Um, right now, emotions are still running hot. Uh, it, it's going to take some time for us to process, to you know, plan uh, on both sides. Um, what the approach is going to be in a post-Roe world here in the United States. Uh, I think if the, um, the, the, the liberal and progressive body of the country is adamant on um, you know, getting protections back in place, then clearly it's going to need to be codified into law by Congress. Uh, and you know, to that end, you know, one, the filibuster is likely going to need to be suspended for, you know, for votes on this issue. And two, you know, a, a stronger majority for Democrats uh, and or for let's put it this way for non-Republicans in the, the House and Senate need to be established uh, earlier on. I, I I had a subject in one of my my shows where I talked about the need for a a viable third party in this country. And I think the 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 road decision and the process we have have been going through, um, not just in the last few years, but in the last couple of decades, um, is clear evidence that you know, more than just a two-party political system is necessary in this country. Uh, I think, you know, that whether it is a libertarian party, whether it is a green party, whether whoever it is, um, they need to be working towards strengthening their position at the state level and at the federal level so that they can form a, a what I would call a logic block that you know takes away the the immediate majority that either you know the major parties can enjoy um so you know in the senate that could be you know 10 to 15 seats in the senate that would be neither democrat nor republican but would belong to another party so that you know any of these contentious laws that come forward need to be discussed uh, among three parties and give the people a better chance at being more uh, inclusive in their representation. Uh, same thing in the House. You know, it, it would need to be, you know, 
40 uh, seats or something like that where neither party has a, a clear majority and therefore uh, all decisions must be, you know, must be hammered out by committee. Uh, it, it is a process that works in other countries uh, and it could work here. So, you know, we, we talk on this show about practicing activism. So, you know, to the Democrats out there, um, I would say, you know, you need to be doing some heavy duty bridge building between, you know, your party and, you know, the, the strongest uh, third party potentials that are out there. And again, Libertarian Party comes to mind because I believe they are the next strongest party after Democrats and Republicans. And for Republicans, you know, something to to keep in mind, this law is not just going to affect Democrats. This law is going to affect anyone who uh, is is not able to get out from under the the restrictions if you know, a, a, a medical service uh, such as an abortion is needed. So, you know, if, if you're a, a, a rural Republican uh, or a working class Republican, uh, this law is going to affect you too. And, or, or actually this overturning of the law is going to affect you too. And, you know, we need to be open-eyed about this. Uh, this is something that's going to, to have impact across all the political structures uh, because it is going to target you know various demographic and class groups uh, that typically you know have the the problem of a lack of uh, access to you know to the authority and to the the power and the economics they need uh, in order to you know to keep up with uh, the the people at the upper end of the income spectrum I mean, if you can, you know, afford a plane ticket to Canada or to Mexico or, you know, to, you know, any of the, the countries, you know, around the world where abortion is still provided, then you don't have a problem. You can just go and get your, pro- your procedure done and come back. But if you can't afford that, then you are stuck with raising uh, or, or carrying to term that child. And... You know, we, we've talked about this as well. What happens, you know, we talk about pre-born rights. What about post-born? What about that, that child who is a, a product of a rape or a, uh, an incest relationship with a family member? Uh, not only is, is the, the woman going to need to carry that pregnancy to term and be reminded on a daily basis of, uh, how she came to be in that situation once that child is born then you know that that reminder of you know potentially what is a very painful scenario is in front of them every day uh, if children are put up for adoption you know it they are going to enter into an already uh, you know overloaded situation there are you know more there are 300 to 400,000 children awaiting adoption in this country right now if you know another 100,000 200,000 or 300,000 children are placed into adoption what's going to happen to them 
you know, and, and, and again, as we move forward in this you know, so-called post-row environment, these are questions we are going to have to resolve. Who's going to uh, house these children? Who's going to educate them? Who's going to feed them, clothe them? Uh, who's going to you know, support them as they grow up? And you know, this is something that the American public is going to have to foot the bill for. So, you know, while, you know, the, the, the celebrations uh, on, on one side of the decision, you know, are, are joyous, you know, in, in the overturning of this decision, there is a whole other side where, you know, there are circumstances and situations and families and individuals, you know, and young girls who are faced with this life-changing situation and you know who's who's there for them what about the mental health of these young girls as they decide what they're going to do with these these babies that they're having so you know it, it it while the emotions are running hot right now and and on both sides um at, at some point you know we're we're going to need to come to a rational pragmatic realistic discussion of how we proceed forward in this this new world that we've entered and that's you know one of the reasons i picked uh the young lady's uh statement to put in the middle of the show was i thought that she made you know that a a very poignant and pointed case you know and i i think her calmness and her determination are a guideline for how we're going to need to address this as a country so you know we will of course, keep tabs on this. Uh, we will keep you posted as to what's going on and what the latest you know details are. And you know, as solutions uh, you know present themselves, we'll bring them to you. So you know, if you have any any comments on the issue, uh, please send email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. I really would love to hear from the listeners out there as to what they think. Uh, not only about the decision, you know, I, I, I want to have a deeper conversation. Um, what, what does, you know, what does this mean, you know, for your family? You know, as, as I've said, I make no secret about it. I'm an adopted child. So I have a special perspective on this. But, you know, that's me. What do you think? Send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. And let's ha- let's have a talk about it. All right. So, in the meantime, as I said at the top, you know the the COVID disease has not left us. It's still out there. We've got new variants rearing their ugly heads in this country. Um, so, you know, all of the the safety protocols that we are used to, that we know by heart, uh, we need to continue to practice. So, yeah, wear your mask uh, in, in public when situations uh, warrant, you know, and let's make sure that you know, we're, we're vaccinated and boosted and, and all that good stuff, too, because that's going to help keep us from spreading this disease and it's going to help us shut it down. So in the meantime, thank you all for listening. As always, I do appreciate the fact that you choose to uh, to download the podcast and listen to it. Uh, Thank you so much. Have a great week. Stay safe. And we'll be posting another episode up in seven days. (laughs) 